Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 324th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're coming to you on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year. God, it seems incredible. Seems like yesterday I started. Across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. This is where entertainment meets technology. I hope all of our listeners throughout the world and the 1.73 million readers of my 30-second Read daily business newsletter. I hope you've settled back to work and are preparing for a terrific 2018. I really believe this is going to be a sensational year. I think 2019 might slow down a bit because we'll have um, interest rate rises this year, maybe three or four of them, and the um, labour market will tighten up as more and more jobs are replaced by robots and AI and, you know, Automated, uh, autonomous cars, etc. But you know, this year it's going to be a ripper. I don't know about you, but I love my Starbucks coffee. I really look forward when I'm out driving or I'm tripping across the country or whatever to head off to Starbucks and get a coffee. But you often hear that Starbucks coffee is part of the reason that people are getting fat. And, you know, most people don't think of coffee as being fattening. Well, it's not actually the coffee that's fattening. It's all the crap they put in it. But if you want to go to Starbucks and have a healthy coffee, you can have a Cafe Misto. It's like a, a latte, but because it's coffee-based, the price is significantly less. And if you order any other size than tall, opt for non-fat milk. And the whole thing's just 80 calories. That's pretty good, even if you're like me and have probably six or seven coffees a day. It's still only 500 calories or so, so that's not bad. Cappuccinos are good. It's a pretty luxurious drink, and it combines equal amounts of espresso, hot milk, and frothed milk. And again, if you're getting bigger than a tall, choose non-fat milk. And the total calories just 90. Not bad, again. Or you can have a faux chai latte if you're, you know, a bit pretentious like a lot of the people in Hollywood. Um, and a chai tea latte from Starbucks. It overloads on sugar, but this quick substitute is a much healthier choice. Make sure to leave extra space in your cup so when you uh, order your coffee at Starbucks, you ask for room at the top. And... Uh, it's zero calories without the milk. So, there you go. They're healthy ones. Now, let's talk about the fattening ones. How about s'mores frappuccino? Well, frappuccino is the second worst F word in our vocabulary. Not even sure what the first one is. I guess it's fuck. And when you're talking about s'mores frappuccino, even if you down 14 Chips Ahoy cookies you still wouldn't consume as much sugar as you would slurping this drink. It's 590 calories, 22 grams of fat, 
290 milligrams of soda, sodium, 94 carbs, 88 grams of sugar. Oh, it has got six grams of protein. But that's equivalent to over 25 teaspoons of sugar in your s'mores frappuccino. Wow, how healthy is that? Boy, you'd want to dive into one of those every day, but people do. And people eat, separate, drink, eat, drink several of them. So, you know, they're having up to 100 teaspoons of sugar a day. Well, how about a white chocolate mocha? You'd like to start your day with seven pastries worth of sugar? Because that's what you'll be down if you get to the bottom of a white chocolate mocha with whipped cream. God, my hands are shaking just thinking about it. 580 calories, 26 grams of fat, 69 grams of carbs, 18 teaspoons of sugar. That's enough to send you off to the operating room. How about the uh, popular tuxedo hot cocoa? Very popular, this. It's dark and white chocolate swirl together with a mocha drizzle. Very pretty drink. And it creates a sweet hot cocoa beverage. It has more calories than seven blueberry waffles. 580 calories, 22 grams of fat, 300 milligrams of sodium, 77 carbs, which all turn to sugar, 20 teaspoons of sugar. Or maybe you drink iced salted caramel mocha. Espresso, milk, loads of sugar in the syrup that they put on it. You could down three vanilla cones from McDonald's before you'd have the same amount of calories. It's an overindulgent excuse for a beverage. 600 calories, 23 grams of fat, 410 milligrams of sodium, 22 teaspoons of sugar. Very healthy drink. I know people who drink three or four of those a day. So it's two and a half thousand calories just in four drinks. Cotton candy creme frappuccino blended cream. Have you seen that one? There's photographs of it in the store. Cotton candy creme frappuccino blended cream. It's 520 calories, 18 grams of fat, 320 milligrams of sodium, 85 grams of carbs, 25 teaspoons of sugar. The final one I'll mention is green tea creme frappuccino blended cream. In its purest form, green green tea is a potent waste lots ingredient. But once it's mixed with sugar, milk and whipped cream, its health benefits go to shit. 550 calories, this is more than a Big Mac, 18 grams of fat, 320 milligrams of sodium, 91 grams of carbs, 25 teaspoons of sugar. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Starbucks. I think they're terrific. But um, choose your drinks carefully. During the week and last week on the show, we are reflecting about the extraordinary changes that have taken place over the past eight years of this show, from self-driving cars and trucks to Hyperloop, from Airbnb to, to Uber, to cryptocurrency. It's been a remarkable period of time. And speaking of crypto, as you probably know, it took a major hit over Christmas. Our portfolio fell about 25%, but it only took a few days to recover. 
and we're now up about mm, probably 30 or 40% on our previous high. And we're looking for a terrific year for cryptocurrency in 2018. Um, I'm not necessarily talking about, just talking about Bitcoin, um, although I still think Bitcoin is a great investment and if you get in now, you'll double your money in the next, next couple of months. It's sitting around $15,000 at the moment and I think that's going to go much, much higher. But we've got a portfolio, I think, of 10 or 12 cryptos and each one of them is showing very strong growth. Um, we actually had a handyman come in to do some work for us and uh, he came and he gave us a bill for 100 bucks. And so we gave him the 100 bucks and then he turned around and he said, um, would you invest this in cryptocurrency for me? Because I really, you know, the 100's not going to break me, but I wouldn't mind at least putting my toe in the water. So we said, yeah, we'll, we'll invest the 100 for you. So we invested the 100 in crypto for him and seven days later, he had 525 bucks. So we went from $100 to $525 in a week. Now, that's a hell of a lot better than working. So if you're not in crypto already, you should get in because this year is going to be huge. But don't just go in and pick one. You've got to do your homework. You've got to study up on what they are and what the opportunities are. You know, I'm a big believer in Ripple. Um, I know it's got a couple of drawbacks, but um, it facilitates financial transfers in banks. And at the moment, you know, to transfer money in a bank takes four or five days and uh, Ripple will transfer it in less than a second and for almost no fees. So... Um, according to Ripple, they've got about 100 banks involved at the moment. And uh, last time I looked, it was about $1.80, which is down from about $3.60 a week ago. But it's going to go straight back up again. So don't worry about it. There's a few There's a few good ones. Funfair is another one. And that's um, crypto for gaming, for casinos. And I think that's another another one that's really good. So if you're not in cryptocurrency, at least put your foot, put your toe in the water, because you'll be very, very glad that you did. Last week there was a huge and a well overdue step forward for women. Um, Iceland this week began putting in place a new law that requires companies and government agencies to prove that they're paying men and women equally which now positions the country at the forefront of global efforts to minimise gender equality. The equal pay standard took effect last Monday and companies with 25 full-time employees or more must analyse their salary structures to ensure that men and women are being paid the same amount for doing the same jobs. About time. Then they must report back to the government for certification or they face penalties that includes fines. I mean... When you think about it, it's bloody ridiculous that um, women can do the same job as a man and in America get 77 cents in the dollar for it. I mean, it's just, it defies logic. And, uh, you know, it's part of the inequality. 
the, another inequality, of course, is the number of women on corporate boards, the number of women that are CEOs of companies. I mean, it, it, it's time that we started taking very drastic action to eliminate these um, discrepancies. Now, Iceland's had equal pay laws in place since 1961, but the new standard's the first time that the nation's put in place specific steps to try and force companies to eliminate the pay gaps. And in 2017, for the ninth year in a row, Iceland had the best overall score on the, score on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, which measures the size of the differences between men and women in health, economics, politics and education in 144 countries. For wage equality, Iceland ranked fifth in the report, which said that globally the average pay for women in 2017 was $12,000 compared with 21000 for men. In Iceland, women earned 14% less than men in 2015. In 2016, women accounted for 48% of the, of the elected representatives in Iceland's parliament, and so it should be. I mean, if you have a look at the um, figures in America for female representation in both the Senate and the House, it's bloody pathetic. And uh, it it's a result of, firstly, it being an, a, an old boys club, but secondly, a lack of women, women wanting to run. And uh, I think that's going to change this year. More and more women seem to want to run for the elections at the end of this year. And I think the Me Too movement is empowering women. So all these things are good. Now, Icelandic law since 2013 requires private companies of more than 50 employees to have at least 40% women or men, on their executive board. But the gender pay gap issues have stubbornly persisted. While Iceland's come a long way and are in the forefront of gender equality in the world, they are still far from having equality. The interesting thing is that Icelanders support the new law. <clears throat> One survey shows the difference between income brackets and professions. 42% of executives and senior officials oppose the law, while overall just 21% of Icelanders are against it. I think the executives and senior officials are, um, firstly, they don't want to do the work probably, but secondly, the old boys clubs have been working for them, so they'll probably want to stick to it. The uh, manager of the Confederation of Icelandic Employers a business association, who is one of the law's critics, said the initiative created complications and additional expenses. The law ma mandates that smaller companies collect records that they say are technically difficult to obtain. Rubbish. While equal pay audits should be encouraged, it probably should be left to businesses to decide whether to institute such measures. The problem is they don't. Now, it seems to me that a law implementing a standardised job evaluation is not a solid fix to a problem of this nature. The deeply rooted stereotypes that favour men and women for certain jobs and professions, they're the fundamental problem. But this is a good start. 
You know, if people won't do it voluntarily, we have to find a way to force them. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? goes out every day. We now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. I say that it takes just 30 seconds to read, but sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it can take you a minute, a minute and a half, and every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, of course, cryptocurrencies. We talk about all of that stuff. It's free. Its information is invaluable, and I guarantee you 100% that we will not give your email details to anyone. No one will not try to sell you a thing. It's um, really gratifying to see all the fantastic response we get and the number of companies that enrol all of their senior staff as an education tool. Um, there's a big company in, in England, Shooter Healthcare, that does that, and a company in, a, a company in Australia, um, Australian Health and Leisure. Um, and thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, if you don't get my daily newsletter, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol. Just think if you go out to dinner with the boss and he starts talking about Hyperloop and you know all about it, or he starts talking about autonomous cars and you know about it, or he starts talking about Ripple and you know about it, or he st starts talking about something to do with medicine and you know about it. You're going to go to the top of the class. You are going to be seen as somebody who is really smart and keeps abreast of what's going on. So if you don't get it, the only person you're robbing is yourself, and it's 100% free, bobpritchard.com, and just enroll. My guest today after the break is um, John Liversay. He's a top sales expert and funding strategist with over 20 years of experience. He's a great guy. Um, I spoke to him about some help for me, and he gives startups the pitching secret to become irresistible to investors. That's bloody hard to raise money, but John is fantastic. And when he works with startups, they become master storytellers, so they inspire investors to join their team. John's been featured by both Entrepreneur and Inc., and is the author of The Successful Pitch. Now, his strapline which I absolutely love, is that John takes startups from invisible to investable. Great line. And I'll back with my friend, John Liversay, from Metal, of course, after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, coming to you from Hollywood, California, being broadcast across 63 countries. And this is where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore. 
or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the past five and a half or a bit more years, we've given you insights into the lives of and that's somewhere around 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do, what um, the challenges that they faced along the way, and we talk about um, how they overcame those challenges and try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to be successful in business. Failure rates up over 95%, and so the 5% that do make it are obviously doing something right. So, if you're an entrepreneur or a business person in general out there, then you should um, buy as many books as you can by people who are successful and read articles about them and uh, listen to segments like this where you get some pretty good tips on what you should do and what you shouldn't do. John Liversay is a great bloke, another metal guy. Uh, he's a top sales expert and funding strategist with over 20 years of experience. He hosts the successful Pitch Brought podcast with investors from around the world and is the pitch mentor at startfast.net, which is the number one accelerator in upstate New York. You know, for those of you who have made pitches to one investor or a group of investors, it's a challenging task and uh, there are ways that you can do it that are successful and there are some simple things that you can do that really screw up those presentations. So John gives startups the pitching secret to become irresistible to investors and that's what we're all looking for. Now when John works with startups, they become master storytellers so that they can inspire investors to join their team. John has been featured by both Entrepreneur and Inc., and is the author of The Successful Pitch. And this is a great expression. John takes startups from invisible to investable. That's really clever. I wish I had a thought of that. John, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Well, thanks, Bob. It's great to be with you. Now, most entrepreneurs that you speak to, I, I have entrepreneurs come to me almost every day, as you do, and they all say, we have got the next billion-dollar product. It's the be-all and end-all. It's terrific. And uh, they think that if their product's good, then that's all that they need. Um, and that's far from the truth, isn't it? Your, it's, it's interesting, your view that uh, investors say to invest in the jockey and not the horse. That is so true. Yes. Um, they tell me all the time that, you know, if you if we give you 10 minutes to pitch in front of our angel group, don't take five minutes giving us a product demo because that's not how we decide who we give the money to. So that big aha for a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, is, 
oh, you're investing in me and my team more than my idea. And the reason is that the idea will probably pivot even after you've been given the money. And it's re- it requires a team and a founder with a strong vision, a big market, and a unique solution to a problem that's being solved more than the bells and whistles of what the particular app or product is doing. I find so many uh, entrepreneurs that come to me are either solo and don't have anybody around them, or they've got brother Jimmy and cousin Freddie and somebody that they met along the way that have no real experience in what it is that they're doing. That is a goof, isn't it? It really is, Bob, because investors want to see that the team ideally has worked together in another startup. That's the dream team for them, right? right? If you've been together, you have a working relationship and you even have a successful exit, well, that makes it much easier for the investors to say yes to that team because what the investors really care about is getting a three to five return on their investment in three to five years. That's the unspoken question that they have in their head. How will this fit into my portfolio? But more importantly, is this team wide and deep? In other words, are both the founder and the co-founder marketing experts, but no one's a tech expert, or are they both tech expert and no one knows marketing? So they're looking for a team that has complementary skill sets, not the exact same skill. Does that make right. sense? Yes, it does. So I've got a, I'm out there, I've got a product, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, how do I first make contact with investors? How do I go about doing that? Well, you know, Investors tell me they see about 2,500 pitches in a year and fund 25 of them. 24 of those 25 come from a warm introduction. Yes. So you really need to get a warm introduction. One investor told me, if you can't figure out a way to get an introduction to me, you probably can't figure out how to get to your customers. So that's one of the things that I really offer is once you have a great pitch from working with me, then I'll make the strategic introductions to the right investor that's funding your type of startup, right? If you're a fintech investor, there's no reason to show a pitch that's all mobile and shopping related and vice versa. So that's the other thing is people really need to do their homework on what kind of investments does this particular investor like to fund? And really, if you're smart, you take it an extra step and talk to the people that they've funded and see what they're like to work with. So you do as much due diligence on the investor as they're doing on you. Yeah, I think the problem with that is that most um, entrepreneurs that I know get sick of knocking on doors at about the 50th door and uh, they would take almost anybody if they've got the money. Well, you know, that'll, that'll bite you in the butt at the end. It really will. You know, angel investors can become devils, venture capitalists become vultures. You know, you can, you know, give up too much equity just for the money and then you get voted out. So you really need to make sure that who you're taking on fits your culture. So first of all, you have to define what your culture is sure. for your team so that you can see whether that investor is a good fit or not. Yeah. So I've found my investor or my group of investors, so I'm going to go and see them for the first time or mm. before I see them. I would probably – they would probably ask me for a um, some sort of a PowerPoint, a deck on what my product is. How much do I disclose to them at that point? I haven't met them yet. How much do I tell them? Well, in the pitch deck, there's two kinds of decks, one that you send without you presenting and another 
that you send when you pre- that you use when you're presenting. The one that you yeah. use when you present has even fewer words than the one that does. But either way, don't put too many words on those slides. That's the biggest mistake I see over and over again is no one's going to read a bunch of text on a slide. So you want to, the whole goal of any pitch is to get the next meeting, just like dating. You want the next date. So get them, you know, give them enough that they say, ah, this person has intrigued me enough to want to meet them and take some time to have a conversation with them. So that pitch deck has to be clear, concise, and compelling of who do you help, what problem do you solve, how big is this market, what's your barrier to entry to competition, some financial projections that make some sense so the investor can see how you think, and then really making them say, this is the right team to execute this idea, so I really want to get to know them. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of entrepreneurs want a D- an NDA signed, and a lot of them are afraid to disclose too much information because they're afraid that they've, they've got a patent pending or something and they're afraid that somebody mm. is going to steal it from them. I come across that quite often. Um, what, are you, what are your views on those? The minute you ask an accredited investor to sign an NDA, it's a no. They're not interested in stealing your ideas. It shows that you're a rookie. Um, because it's all about the execution of the idea, not the idea. So you now need to not only be an expert on your idea, but what the competition is doing and how you differ. And, you know, investors are going to probably ask you, well, what's to prevent someone from stealing this idea or getting funded before you and growing faster? So you need to have thought that through. The classic example, I think, is Uber and Lyft. Right? There's nothing proprietary about that, right? They both do the same exact thing, but it's all about who got the funding faster, who executes it better, who's got better branding. It's the team behind it. So that's really more important than your idea. That's an interesting example because um, Uber got off to a flying start, but I think in the longer term, my money might be on Lyft. Well, Lyft have done some really smart things, like donating, I believe, a million dollars it was to the HRC when Uber was getting some negative publicity about uh, how they were treating certain people. So, yeah, it's a it's a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. And they're they're also working on the different types of um, of vehicles, um, particularly with autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. um, so that they can give. 10 different people, 10 different experiences to, to fit their needs. Um, so I've now sent my deck to the to the potential investor. What's the next step? If they like it, they will then take either a phone meeting or an in-person meeting. Your ideal scenario, which I did for one of my clients, Cole Smith, is to get them in front of an angel group. Right. We are given 10 minutes to pitch. And then, Bob, this is the real thing that most people aren't prepared for, the 10-minute Q&A. Right. So... That pitch is important, but so is the Q&A. And what I do is I give my clients the questions they're going to get asked and prepare them for the answers, such as what's it cost to acquire a new customer? If you don't have those answers ready and thought through, you're going to get a no. Right. Um, And so you can't be defensive when you get asked a question either. Sometimes they're testing to see how coachable you are. So you need to really have some skills on answering the questions that you get asked. So I tell people... Make sure you understood the question properly. The biggest mistake people make is they're nervous and they don't hear the question and they answer something that the person didn't ask them. Then the investor thinks you're being cagey and it's a no. So I like to say what I heard you say was, or let me rephrase that to make sure I got it right. 
Is that the, yes, that's the question. And then you answer it. And if you really want bonus points, then you ask the investor, did that answer your question? Right. So most entrepreneurs that I find um, know a hell of a lot about their product, but they know very little about how to market it. And uh, they really haven't thought through that area much. And it's that's the most difficult area, really. I mean, a, you know, I'm not saying that inventing a new product isn't difficult, but actually finding customers for it and being able to continually roll out those so you get more and more, that's hard. So when the potential investors ask questions, mm-hmm. they usually don't ask about the product itself, do they? It's usually about... No, it's, it's what are you going to do with my money? Yeah. And one of the big mistakes people make is the top down thing. Oh, if we only get 1% of all the people who live in China to buy this, we'll be rich. And you want to go bottom up. I'm going to spend this much money on marketing and yeah. hire a sales force. And we're going to hit these milestones at three months, six months, seven months. This money will last us 12 months or 18 months. And so they, you've thought through how you're going to grow it. Uh, and that there's a strategy in place. That's why it's so important if you're the tech person to have a marketing person on your team, if not the co-founder, so that that person has that expertise to bring to the party so that you've thought through um, what you're going to do. To And one investor said to me, if you're selling dog food, I want to see the dogs eating the food. Right. <laughs> so proof of, proof of concept, right? Yep. You know, you're asking people to change their behavior, so another example is Airbnb, right? You're answering two questions when you pitch. Why you and why now? So Airbnb would not have been successful had the economy not been in trouble in 2008. People wouldn't have been willing to rent out their home or their room to a stranger. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with Uber. You know, if we all, the majority of us didn't have smartphones, that wouldn't work. So you really, timing is really important and that you know why now is the key to get the investor to pull the trigger now. Another problem that comes up very frequently with entrepreneurs, I need to project financials. Now, I've just invented this cup. How the hell do I work out how many of my, well, you know, there's one way what we usually do is go out and um, conduct, if it's a consumer product, um conduct some research among consumers and you find that four out of, you know, one out of 10 would definitely buy it and two out of 10 may buy it and X number. And so you can extrapolate it out. But how do you actually come up with something that doesn't look too small that the investor's not going to be interested in or too big where they turn around and say, that's just bullshit? Right. There's a fine line between that. You know, most projections are a hockey stick projection. Sure. And, um, you know, the New York Angels, for example, which is where I sent Cole Smith, and he got uh, an offer uh, for the 700000 he was seeking pre-revenue. Um, they send all of their deals and due diligence to this consulting firm who looks at the financial projections to get their input. So what I've done is develop a relationship with that organization, and I have my clients show their financial projections to that consulting firm that the angel group uses before they even get in front of the angels. Because what they're really looking for is how you think, right? That you, and if you, the more experience you have, obviously, the better it is. So you need an expert to look at those financials and say, this is unrealistic, um, you've under budgeted here, over budgeted there, you'll never grow that fast, no one ever has. One of the big mistakes people make is they quote, try to boil the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, pick your lowest hanging fruit, pick one thing you do really well and show how that's going to grow the company before you start talking about all the other things. My favorite example is Amazon. They just sold books first. Yes. And got proof of concept on that. Yeah. I think they've probably developed as they've gone. I'm, <laughs> every day must wake up in the morning and say, gee, there's another hundred areas I can now tackle because everybody else is so bloody useless. <laughs> Well, you've got proof of concept. You've got the system in place. And, you know, if you 10x your business, the thing that probably falls down is you as the founder and your systems aren't in place. So that kind of thought needs to really be put into financial projections so that if things did take off that you, you know, for example, I interviewed uh, the founder of UGG, you know, the, the you know, sheepskin uh, shoes and shoes. And, you know, he had a marketing problem where he was showing models uh, in his ad and the surfers that were using it to keep their feet warm after surfing in Malibu were saying, those girls in the ads clearly aren't surfers. Right. So he had the wrong message to the right market. So right. then he got uh, up and coming surfers because he couldn't afford professionals to be in the ads and the business took off. So he needed funding to meet the demand. Yeah. But, you know, because if you don't meet the demand and you've got all this advertising, then people will get mad and not come back. So you need to be prepared of what you're going to use the funding for. Okay, so I've got the nod. I've got 10 minutes in front of mm-hmm. a, um, a funding group. What's the allocation of that 10 minutes? What makes a great pitch? Well, you really only have 90 seconds in the, the first 90 seconds, even though they give you 10 minutes. You've got to grab them. I say grab their heartstrings so they'll open their purse strings. Our brains are wired to go, oh, another pitch, right? So you've right. got to give me something that I've never heard before, that a, a statistic or something that I'm like, oh, what? This is something new, right? Uh, and then you get people right away out of that into the imagination. Imagine there was a way that, you know, people – wouldn't have to wait in line in Vegas in the 100-degree heat at a convention or that you wouldn't have to stand in the rain in New York praying for a cab to come by that never comes by. Well, you don't have to imagine it because we're going to, you know, so that's how you would paint that picture for Uber. So that's, that's, that's the official hook, right? Don't talk and make people guess what it is you're doing. you got to get right to it. You know, here's how big this problem is. I've personally experienced it or whatever your core issue is that makes you uniquely qualified, that you pull them in right away and then get them into, here's the big problems we're solving and here's our unique solutions and here's how big this market is. And then if you have something to show of how you're doing it, any kind of look at your financials, the competition, you know, maybe a grid that shows where you are compared to the other people. And then, of course, the team slide is the most important slide, in my opinion, based on the feedback I've heard, why this team is uniquely qualified. Tell the story again around you and why, you know, your story of origin, why you're so passionate about this. It has to be more than just making money to keep going. And then anybody else who might be on your advisory board that's, you know, that's involved, any, you know, letters of intent, any kind of traction, it doesn't have to be revenue. And then you're asking what you're going to do with that money. So that's. That's 10 minutes. You can see how a product demo is not a big part of that. And again, the goal is to get the next meeting. Okay. When asked, most people say that they would rather die than go out and stand in front of people and speak, Mm. Um, which I find amazing. Being a speaker and you're a speaker as well, I I don't have any trouble with it. But um, 
What are the secrets to increasing your confidence before you walk out there in front of a room full of people that have heard everything before? Well, Arthur Ashe said it best, I think. The key to success is confidence, and the key to confidence is preparation. Right. So you need to practice your pitch. Uh, And people say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll sound robotic. I'm like, no, you're not memorizing it, but you're practicing it. And then you need to practice it in front of strangers and see if they understand what you're saying. Because your friends and family are like, oh, yeah, I've heard it. It's good. You're good. You need to really say, oh, did I lose you there? Did I confuse you there? So the other secret I have for building up your uh, confidence is something I call stacking your moments of certainty. Right. Which simply means you write down three or four things when you knew you nailed it, right? You interviewed for a job, you got an offer. You um, went and got a customer, they said yes. You asked somebody out on a date, you got the second date. Put that in your head as you're getting ready to go into the room as opposed to the negative self-talk. Sure. Oh, they'll never invest. No one else has said yes yet. If I don't get this money, I'm going to go out of bit. You know, any of that will cause your confidence to plummet. So when you stack your moments of certainty and you're prepared – and you get those butterflies in your stomach, which is really just adrenaline, to fly in formation, right? Yep. Get all your self-focus off yourself. I think part of the reason people get so scared is they're worried about do people like me and the judging. You make it about them and not about you, and that'll also really help your confidence. Right. So storytelling, I know from my presentations that um, when I tell a story – People remember it. I have people coming up to me that saw me 20 years ago and say, I still tell that story that you told about whatever it was um, because they remember that. They don't remember the figures. They don't remember all the peripheral stuff. So can you give us an example of how storytelling helps increase sales? Sure. Um, well, first of all, it's again back to the, how our brain is wired, right? When we sell, talk about numbers and give people things to compare and contrast, that's the left side. We're analytical. We've got our arms crossed. We're going, hmm. But if I say, let me tell you a story, right. you relax, right? It's the right side of your brain. Then you're in your imagination. Maybe this will even be entertaining. And the real secret to good storytelling, Bob, is to put the listener in the story with them. So if you're telling a story and someone can imagine themselves on that journey, especially when you're telling a case study of here's somebody else who is just like you. They were struggling to get their revenues up. They didn't know how to pitch. They were stumbling through the pitch and they were nervous and they were confusing people and worse, they were boring people. And I took that person from stumbling to soaring, from confusing to clarity, from boring to inspiring and when he did all those things with a great story of why he was so passionate about this startup, the investors all wanted to fund him. Does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on? Then people are like, yes, because that they identify with the struggle that person had. And they realize that if I could take that person on the journey, they might want to go on that same journey. Okay, so I've, I've given my presentation and there's 50 people in the room and five have come up and said, look, I'm really interested in talking further about this. Mm. What's the next step? Well, the next step is to really, you know, while someone's really interested, get that booked in, right? right? Like, okay, great. I've got my phone here. Let's book a time for a phone call or coffee, right? And ask them, what was it about my pitch that really resonated with you? Get them to be specific because that's the gold that you can then feed back to them. Like, oh, I really like that you're keeping our schools safer or that you're helping low-income students with their math problems. Whatever it is that you're solving, um, or I really like that story you told of, you know, 
how you were in the Amazon jungle and had to survive. And that tells me that you've got somebody who's got tenacity, right? So figure out what it is about your pitch that made it interesting to them and, you know, continue to build that relationship. You know, the big thing is if you want money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. <laughs> Fair enough. Right? Yeah, I agree with that. I never thought about it before, but it's, it's, it's really true. You want to have collaborative conversations. You know, like, here's my idea. You've heard my pitch. I'd love to get your opinion on how I could make this even better. More collaboration, less about the money. If you say, oh, I'm glad you like my pitch. Where's your checkbook, right? Then they might start giving you advice. Like, you know what? I think you're too early. I think you're too late. But if you start, you know, asking for the advice first, you have, they're like, I like this person. I'm collaborating with them. I could really see myself not just investing, but having a part in growing this. Hmm. So what are the, what are the red flag no-nos when you're you're in a you're a an entrepreneur? You're talking to an investor. What are the absolute throw up a red flag? I shouldn't take this guy's money. Oh, okay. So from the investor standpoint, right? Uh, so you're near doing your due diligence on the investor because there's lots of red flags that you get the red flag by, as we talked about, asking them to sign a non-disclosure, saying you don't have any competition, saying you're only getting one percent of the market. So assuming you didn't do any of those mistakes. The things that uh, the red flags when you're talking to a potential investor is uh, if they won't let you talk to anyone else that they funded, okay. right? If they're sure. they're keeping that, you know, most people are happy, you know, they're happy with that relationship, right? They uh, and if they start to um, make you feel less than they treat you with less respect than you want, right? Because this is the dating part, right? If, you know, it's just like in dating. Someone shows you who they are, believe it the first time, right? And right. like, oh, well, maybe they're having a bad day. No, no, they're a jerk. They're going to be a jerk now. They're going to be a jerk six months from now, and they're really going to be a jerk when they give you their money. Right. So uh, if they start, you know, there's a different way to ask someone a question, right? You know, I'm curious, have you thought of this? As opposed to, Oh my God, you know, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I bet you haven't even figured out what your competition's doing, right? Whoa, you know, that's a red flag. Yep. Okay. Now, there's an old saying that I've always found to be true. And the saying is that the best way to destroy a business is to take on a partner. Um, you know, partners always have, at some point, um, a divergence of opinion. It's it's extremely difficult to work in business with a partner. So, what should you look for when you're taking on people to be involved in your journey, or investors to take on as partners? What are the most important things to look for? Uh, shared values, mutual respect, and an ability to clear the air with cl- good communication. I think that's the key to any relationship, personal or business. And then that that person shares your vision and is very clear that even though they have some ideas and money, that it's still you are the ultimate decision maker based on equity ownership and all that other stuff. So I think that's really the three criteria I would recommend. So how do you you determine um, what interest in the business you should offer to an investor i mean that's got to be difficult when you've because the actual value of the company um, Mm -hmm. 
in real terms is a hell of a lot less than what you think it is because of all the work you've put in it. So how do you decide if you're asking somebody for 100000 or a million or whatever it is, what equity in the company they should get for that? Well, it really is an art. It's not this exact science. Um, and one of the best things you can do is have really good people on your team and really good people on your advisory board. Right. That, that helps um, negotiate, get your valuation up. There's all kinds of methods. You know, there's a Berkus method of evaluation. Your early money is going to be your most expensive money. You're going to have to, because that, whoever comes in early is taking the most amount of risk and therefore they want the biggest upside. So you just have to realize that. Uh, popular now is convertible notes. Yes. Where you're not, you know, coming up with a fixed value right at the, you know, at the moment, and that it changes as the company grows. Um, so there's, you know, there's a that's a whole separate uh, topic. But I think being reasonable and you know doing the math and understanding, like if I ask for ten percent and a million dollars, then that gives my company X, you know, valuation. And what's that based on? Um, and not just your own perception. It's kind of like selling a house, right? It doesn't matter what you think and how much sweat equity you put into the house. It's what the comps are. Yeah. So from a from an investor's point of view, would they rather an equity position or um, or a convertible note? Which is which is the most popular? Which is well. Uh, I think some people are willing to do convertible notes because they realize. Um, that things change and, you know, you know, things get diluted and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it really is all how experienced the team is that determines how comfortable the investors are in what their initial uh, offering is. Right. Okay. So let's talk about um, John Liverside for a minute. <laughs> I would imagine that for most entrepreneurs, certainly nearly every entrepreneur that comes to me, Consulting with you would be an enormous benefit. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm sitting out there listening to this show thinking, God, I need all that knowledge and that um, all those techniques to be able to get investors. Is it going to send me broke to hire John Liversay? Well, you know, I think if you're starting any business, you need to have some capital, either from friends and family or your own money. Whether you're opening a bakery, you still have to buy the supplies. So the biggest mistake people make is putting all their money uh, on a patent or hiring all these lawyers, you know, to get all everything set up. And you need some of that. But the number one reason people go out of business is lack of customers and then lack of funding. So I say you have to invest in learning this ecosystem, right? It's a dance, it's a language, and you can try it on your own or you can hire me, as think of me as a Sherpa. So I charge $5,000 to work with people for 10 one-hour one-on-one sessions to get their pitch right, to get them you know, practiced and the answers that they need, all of the things, and then start making strategic introductions to investors, getting offers, and then ideally getting more than one offer so I can help them through that due diligence process. So do you help people actually get in front of Pasadena Angels? or Yes. Mm-hmm. So you actually do that as well? So yes. Because I find, I find for most entrepreneurs, trying to find investors is a very difficult um, task. Well, I've interviewed, I've interviewed over 100 investors from different um, angel groups and VCs on my podcast, and they tell me every day, bring me good deals. Yeah. And if you introduce me to somebody, we're going to trust that they have a good pitch because you're the pitch whisperer. So that's what I have to really say to people. It's not just the introduction. It's having the good pitch to get the yes. 
For example, I interviewed Ben Nazarin in Silicon Valley, and he said, yeah. I like to see the team slide as the second slide. Well, that's not the normal order of a slide deck. Sure. But now he, I know that when I connect people who he likes to invest in artificial intelligence and big things like that, that we go, let's make sure that team slide is the second slide on the pitch deck because that's what Ben wants to see. So it's knowing all those nuances that really make the difference to get them to say yes and get the next meeting. What are your views on um, crowdfunding? Oh, I'm a big proponent of equity crowdfunding, not the rewards crowdfunding, but there's one called dreamfunded.com started by Manny Fernandez, who is also an accredited investor. He was on CNBC's Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. Um, and now that the laws have changed since May of last year, you don't have to be an accredited investor to invest. Right. And you, uh, it really helps people uh, get their startup out there. But again, in crowdfunding, you have to bring your own crowd. Yep. So social proof is still important. Um, if you're trying to raise in, you know, $100,000, $500,000, you need to show that you're almost halfway there from friends and family so people go, oh, there's some traction here. Uh, and again, the story is equally important. But you can do rounds now with uh, dreamfunded.com and an angel group. You know, one can raise 250 and an angel group goes, okay, then we're in for 250 and now you've got your 500. So it's really changing the way things are done and I think it's fantastic. And you give advice on crowdfunding, Kickstarter, etc. Well. Yes, I mean, I usually just work with people who need 250 and up. Right. Um, so the uh, rewards, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, that's Indiegogo, that's typically under that amount. Yeah. So that's not what my specialty is. I'm equity crowdfunding, angel investing, and VC investing. Okay. John, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You can learn more about John Liversay at John at SuccessfulPitchPodcast.com. And I advise everybody who's an entrepreneur to go and find that five grand because I think it will make one hell of a difference, not only right now when you're out there looking for investors, but for the rest of your life. So um, it's a great $5,000 investment. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel on this, the second week of what I'm convinced will be a fabulous 2018. I hope you continue to listen and to read the newsletters and continuing to make the Bob Pritchard Radio Show the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. And we broadcast each week from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. I was reading during the week that Bill Gates thinks that there's six innovations that could change the world. And uh, I'll, go, I'll just run through them. He thinks um, better vaccine storage will make a huge difference because vaccines have saved millions of lives around the world. But they spoil very quickly if they are, they're not stored at the right temperature. 
a group of inventors from Global Good in Seattle have created an innovative new refrigerator called the Meta Fridge. It stays cold enough to keep vaccines safe even during long power outages. They're also working on a portable cooler that enables vaccinators to travel farther and reach kids in the most remote places. The second thing that um, Bill Gates thinks is a huge move forward in 2018 is gene editing. I spoke about this about a year ago and I advised you to get involved in one of the two companies that uh, has the CRISPR technology, C-R-I-S-P-R, and uh, I'm involved in one, not, not involved, I've invested strongly in one. But imagine a future where we could edit a sick person's DNA to make them better or remove the genes that enable mosquitoes to transmit malaria, for example. We're still in the early stages of development, but... Um, Gates knows there are a lot of questions about how to use this technology responsibly, but he is very confident about the possibilities. The company that um, I'm involved in or invested in is called CRISPR Technologies, and uh, it's well worth an investment. It's gone up quite considerably in the last three months. The next one is solar fuel, and if we're going to end our dependence on fossil fuels and curb climate change, we need a lot of different approaches. And Gates recently visited a lab at Caltech where researchers are exploring ways to turn the sun's energy into fuel. So we're still a long way off from the day you can fill up your car with solar fuel, but Caltech's creative approach gives Gates hope that we'll achieve an energy miracle in the very near future. The next one is mRNA vaccines. And, you know, most vaccines use weakened or inactivated forms of a virus to help your body create immunity and prevent disease. Scientists are studying how to use genetic material instead, which would make it much quicker and less expensive to develop new vaccines. If we can teach the body to create its own natural defences, we can revolutionise the way we prevent disease. Improved drug delivery is another one. Um, a, a company called Intarsia wants to change that. They've created a small device that gets implanted under your skin and slowly re releases medications over time. So um, Gates is very hot on that. And, of course, the last one is artificial intelligence. Of all the innovations on this list, this one seems to be the surest bet to transform the way we live. And although AI is going to create new challenges that we need to address, we are confident that it will make our lives more productive, more efficient and easier overall. I heard a great saying during the week, the way to succeed faster is to double your failure rate. And when you think about that, it's pretty true. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way and let somebody who wants to succeed get past you. You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. Who wants that? It's better to aim for the stars and miss than to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, you will never know how amazing it can be and how amazing you can be if you're just a little bit different.
I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll, when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.